Good morning and welcome to Christ Church of Oakbrook. I'm Pete Stearns and I am our student ministry director here. And I'm looking forward to continuing this Lenten series about releasing our grip on things that are so dear to us. Uh, Let's open our time just with a word of prayer and stillness before our Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for an opportunity to come into your presence, Lord, for a chance to be still before you. Lord, we pray today that you would begin to loosen our grip on the sins of our life. Lord, we take a moment just to confess to you that oftentimes we cling most tightly to the sins that we most desperately need to release. Lord, we pray that we would allow you to open our hands and Lord, to give up ourselves during this time of Lent. We pray this in your precious name, amen. My wife and I have begun watching a new television show um, called Lie to Me. Now, Lie to Me is kind of one of your stereotypical crime dramas, but with a slight twist. The protagonist is a scientist instead of being a witty detective or a brash police officer. And he's a scientist that has focused his life work on emotions, and more specifically, the expressions that so often accompany those emotions. And, and during the show, he gets to a point where he can see the emotions in the faces of the people around him so clearly that it is simply like you and I reading a book about what they are feeling. Just by their micro-expressions, he can tell a story of what happened at the crime scene. And it seems a little far-fetched at first, but the reality is, is that it's based on the true story of the life of Dr. Paul Ekman. Now, Dr. Paul Ekman was intrigued by emotion. He was captivated by the expressions on the faces of his friends and family, and when he was in graduate school, he set out to determine whether those expressions were simply the byproduct of the culture that surrounded them, or if indeed emotion and the physical response that accompanies it are biologically ingrained in our DNA. So in order to do this, he flew to Papua New Guinea, And he went and he stayed in a remote tribe that had never had encounters with the outside world. And during his time there, he carefully studied the tribesmen and tribeswomen. And he found that indeed, emotion was universal. They experienced happiness and sorrow, fear and anger. But more striking is that their facial expressions seemed to mimic the same expressions that he encountered in the Western world. When the tribesmen experienced happiness, their eyes lit up and they formed a smile. When they experienced sorrow, their lips curled into a frown. When they experienced fear, their eyes were wide. And when they experienced anger, their brows furrowed. You see, he determined that emotion and our response to emotion 
are not nurture. They're not a product of our culture, but instead they are linked biologically to our DNA and are universal across all people groups and societies. Now as Christians, we then can take that one step further. If we were biologically created to have these four specific emotions and we were biologically created to respond in the same way to them, then we must be able to learn something about our God and the way that we interact in our world based off of those emotions. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. At the time, the church is small. Their leader has just left them, has been crucified on a cross, and the thousands of people that were flocking to hear Jesus were now scattered throughout the region. Jesus, in his ministry, attracted a a kind of a conglomerate of misfits, so to speak. He attracted tax collectors and lepers, widows and centurions. And Paul recognized that if this little church built of misfits was to survive, it needed to stand out from the rest of culture. It needed to be captivating enough that it would draw more people in to experience this good news and this new life. And so throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul goes chapter by chapter explaining what the church and what the followers of Christ should form their lives to look like. In chapter four, Paul begins to talk about unity. He says that one of the most striking features of Christianity is that even though we come from different backgrounds, even though we are in different socioeconomical demographics, we still worship one God. And he uses this analogy of these different parts of the body that are brought into unity by the head of Christ. And he says that if the church is to stand out in this fractured, divided, disharmonious world, then we must display a countercultural unity. And Paul recognizes one of these four emotions of Dr. Paul Ekman as a pillar, as a foundation for providing unity within the church. However, that Emotion is probably different than we might come to have expected. Let's open to Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, at first, this seems like pretty clear wisdom. Don't let yourself get so angry that you're sinning and you're causing more division. But as you look more closely at the Greek, as you dive more deeply into what Paul is saying, he's really not telling us to avoid anger at all. In fact, a different translation from the New American Standard Bible says it a little bit more clearly. It says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul in the Greek clearly is 
providing an imperative that anger is necessary for unity. He is providing a command to the church to be angry. But he accompanies that by saying, and in that anger, do not sin. When we think about anger in today's culture, our minds are drawn to division. We're drawn to emotion that seemingly breaks relationships and families, that divides workplaces. Our minds are quickly drawn to Facebook rants. Earlier this week, I was on Facebook, and one of my friends is a a comedian, and he had posted one of his political jokes that was mildly controversial. And so I clicked into it and then began to read the comments below. There were 68 comments of just pure vitriol about how wrong he was. Right, Our social media is jam-packed with anger and division. And if you want to see that our culture is fragmented, you need look no further than your newsfeed. We're drawn to little kids having arguments. Earlier this week on Monday, I was coaching a group of 24 seven-year-old boys for soccer. A little bit of a handful. Uh, And believe it or not, there were a few arguments that broke out. One of these arguments was that there were two little boys that wanted to play goalie, but only one of them got to play goalie. And so they determined that the best way to decide who would be playing goalie is who could kind of slide themselves in front of the goal most. And so they were kind of pushing back and forth, and that pushing turned into yelling, and that yelling turned into hitting, and that hitting turned into screaming and crying, and then they had to sit practice out. You see, we're, we're drawn to pictures of, of physical violence. We think about relationships and marriages that have been torn apart because of anger. Anger that has turned into abuse, that has made lovers enemies. When we think about anger, it seems to be the antithesis of unity. But at the same time, There are things in this world that we should be angry about. I watched the movie Lion the other day, and it was about this little Indian boy that became orphaned and was living on the street, and it walked through his life experiencing abuse, neglect, not being offered a hand, and not being given food or a place to stay. And I left that movie feeling just so angry that there were children in this world that had to make it on their own. You see, we should be angry that there are orphans and widows that have been left in their distress. We should be angry that there is a prolific sex trade that our culture has lifted up. We should be angry that many of the products that we own have employed child slaves. We should be angry that little children have been forced to fight wars. There are things in this world that we should be angry about. And so we're left to wonder, how can anger both be so destructive and so poignant? Well, I think it is not the emotion of anger that is the sin, it is how we respond to it. 
earlier this fall, I was driving down Ogden Avenue and that dreaded light flashed on on my dashboard telling me that I needed to check my engine. Immediately, I felt this overwhelming sense of anxiety, but I assured myself it would be fine. As I pulled into my driveway, I popped the hood open on my car. Mind you, I have no mechanical experience or any ability with a car. I've changed the headlight once or twice. And I looked in there and kind of grunted a little bit and, and grabbed my, my tools and uh, started tightening up some caps and, and kind of filling up the windshield wiper fluid, maybe shaking around some cords, assuring myself that this indeed would remedy the problem. Sure enough, when I flipped the car back on, the light was still there. So don't ask me for any help with your cars. Um, light was still there. So then I did what any reasonable adult would do at that point. I completely ignored it. I assumed that as long as I didn't pay attention, it would just go away. And it worked for a few weeks. You know, I drove my car and it was fine. And, and in the back of my mind, I figured sometime I'll get this, this figured out. And after a couple weeks, though, it, it started to become noticeable. Right? I could start to feel that my car wasn't functioning quite the way that it was supposed to. It had a little bit of a, a lag to it. It seemed like it was struggling when I, I shifted gears. And eventually, when I was on the freeway, it began to intermittently turn off. <laughs> and at this point, I came to the conclusion that it was time to do the unspeakable. And I brought the car to the mechanic. And I pulled the car into the mechanic's garage, and, and I asked him, um, you know, what was wrong with the car. And so he took his computer, and he attached it to the car, and it spit out a code. And, it, and he read that code, and that code provided him with a part of the engine that was malfunctioning. It didn't tell him exactly what was going wrong, but it pointed him in the right direction. So then he popped the hood, and he examined that specific location in the engine, and sure enough, it became obvious to him uh, what the malfunction was, and he was able to fix it. You see, our anger is not the problem. Our anger, instead, is a check engine light for our lives. And much like a check engine light did not cause a problem, it is simply alerting us to the sin and division in our world and in our hearts. And it is how we respond to that check engine light that will determine whether or not we bring unity or disharmony. And you see, Paul points to two different responses that we often take to that anger. First, and very clearly, he says, be angry and yet do not sin. Paul recognizes that, that in our culture, in our world, the very first reaction, the very first response to that check engine light is indeed sin. It's trying to fix the problem ourselves. That alert goes off in our lives. We recognize sin that's around us and we immediately respond by trying to fix it with the tools that we have at our disposal, but those tools are grossly insufficient to remedy that problem. Those tools are the constructs that we've found around us in our culture. Paul talks about those in verse 31. 
He talks about how we need to get rid of our bitterness, our rage, our brawling, our slander, and our malice. You see, more often than not, the tools that we immediately pull out of our box are those things that are most likely to simply make the problem worse. We lose our tempers. We lose control, and in our rage, we begin to yell, assuming that if we yell loud enough, we'll fix the problem. If we yell loud enough at this sin, if we yell loud enough at this perpetrator, then they'll be convinced that we are indeed right. How many people have any, had any success doing this? Yeah, it rarely works. Sometimes we allow that rage and that anger to then turn into brawling or fighting. We assume that if I hit hard enough, then they'll be too afraid to respond that way again. But we find that that only creates more brokenness, more division, more disunity. Some of us decide to take the higher road. Instead of saying anything to that person here and now, instead I'm going to pull out my tool of slander. And I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm not going to hit. I'm not going to scream. Instead, I'm going to tell everybody else that I know just how bad that person is. I admit that this is often my first response to anger. It's gossip. It's venting. Instead of remedying that problem, we decide to spread it to others, to lift that feeling, that uncomfortable feeling that's setting in on our heart, and we just spread it out to more people so that it doesn't have to burden us nearly as much. Oftentimes, with slander, malice is accompanied. Malice is the ability to turn to somebody and make them feel insufficient because of your words, to cut them down, to hear their sin, to hear their injustice, and meet it with the very same thing, trading an eye for an eye, and assuming that that will somehow fix the engine. But again, just like my car, just like me popping the hood and rattling things around, we have done nothing if not caused more harm and more brokenness. So many of us resort to a second form of response to that check engine light. Again, in verse 26, Paul says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Our second response, much like me and my car, is to simply ignore that anger. I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to hit. I'm not going to cut down and I'm not going to gossip. Instead, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to force it under. And probably when I wake up tomorrow, I'm not going to be as bothered by that sin. But when we ignore our anger it turns into resentment. And resentment, quite simply put, is the compounding of unresolved anger. 
It takes that alert system that God has given us and it perverts us so that it can no longer accurately identify the sin that surrounds us in our world. And so instead, we're left feeling this constant subconscious anger in our lives. And in order to justify this subconscious anger, this this heavy feeling in our heart, we begin to backfill it with things that should make us angry. We begin to seek out things that would justify making us feel this way. Think about it. We, we turn to our social media and we scroll for hours seeing friends of ours or acquaintances of ours that post things that just get us fired up and we say over and over, I just need to block this and get this out of my life. But instead, we keep going back to that same page. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see something posted that makes me particularly angry, I go and click into that person's page and look at all the other things that probably would make me angry. (laughs) We watch news sources that we know will just get us fired up, that will get us stirred up, that will get us frustrated. We seek out friendships that are filled with gossip and slandering thinking, well, if I'm not angry about something, maybe I'll talk to this person and they'll say something that will remind me just how angry I really should be. The reality is, is we kind of like resentment in our lives. And this isn't strange. Humans, in fact, thrive on authentic emotion. We are addicted to experiencing emotion that might be outside of ourselves. You need look no further than the box office to see the movies that have grossed the best this past year. Look at Best Picture nominee La La Land. The entire point of that movie is to bring happiness and joy, and it, for the most part, succeeds in doing so. And so thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people flock to that theater knowing that they're not experiencing that real happiness in their life. And so for just two hours, they can escape it all and feel happy again. Or we have the other side of it, another Best Picture nominee. We go and check out Manchester by the Sea, which I am convinced is meant only to make us feel sorrow. And something about experiencing that sorrow puts our life in perspective, and again, we feel lifted up. The movie Conjuring 2 was one of the most successful movies of this past year, a movie that is built simply to make us experience fear. There's so many people that are addicted to these horror movies because they like the thrill, they like feeling alive, they like their hearts racing. But there are not many movies out there that are built to make us angry, and so instead, we seek out that resentment and we seek out that anger in our day-to-day lives. So how are we to respond to this check engine light? If fixing it ourselves simply makes it more broken, if ignoring it simply exacerbates the problem, then how do you and I truly respond to anger in a way that recognizes that it was given to us by God for a reason and that more often than not, we have perverted that purpose so that it becomes useless? In verse 29... And 32, Paul gives us a framework 
for what anger might actually produce in our lives if it was treated appropriately. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This seems like a radically different reaction to anger than I have ever experienced. It's a grace-filled response, one that seeks not to bring more division, but instead restoration. We know that as believers, God has us in this earth to begin reconciling his creation, restoring his good deeds so that we can bring about a new heaven and new earth. What if God gave us anger in order to alert us to the things in our lives and in our worlds that we needed to respond to, that we needed to restore so that that ultimate goal of new heaven and new earth might become a reality? In order to do this, we need to first recognize that anger is indeed a good thing and that it necessitates an immediate response. Second, we need to bring the problem to the mechanic. We're not gonna be able to fix it ourselves. We can't simply ignore it. Instead, bring it to the person, the only person that can actually remedy it, the only person that can identify the malfunction and begin to resolve it. We need to lift that anger up in prayer. Our first response when we feel that surge of anger in our life should be prayer and it should be asking God to identify where it is that the sin is located. Sometimes that sin is going to be outside. It's going to be injustice performed against you or against other pieces of God's creation but more often than not that anger is actually an alert to something deep within your heart. Through prayer, God will begin to reveal just what that sin is alerting us to, or just what that anger is alerting us to. Next, Paul talks about a foundation of forgiveness. This is poignant because it is a reminder that each and every one of us is in a deep need of forgiveness in our lives. We have each sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in order to forgive others, it requires a deep level of humility on our part to recognize that yes, there is sin in this world and yes, there are others that have perpetrated it, but I too am unworthy of the grace afforded to me by God. And so because I am a sinner, I can step in and talk to you, another fellow sinner, in a way that brings about restoration, which is our last piece of responding to that alert of anger. Paul talks about building others up according to their needs, recognizing the deficiency and asking ourselves, how might we step in? How might we intercede in a way that provides grace that gives them a foothold to grow 
and step forward? How can I engage in compassion in a way that understands their brokenness? And how can I offer myself in kindness in a way that leads them coming back to our faith, recognizing that we respond to anger in a very different way? It is easy for us to just assume that anger is a sin. It is far easier to simply get rid of anger than to appropriately respond to it. It even feels good to kind of push it under. But the reality is, is if we negate this powerful emotion, then we are denying that God has created us with this alert. We are denying that God has created us perfectly with the ability to respond to the sin in our world and we will find that we are unable to recognize those broken places in our communities and we will lack in our response. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that you have created us so uniquely. Lord, that you have given us these powerful emotions that, that trigger these physical responses. Lord, we admit that sometimes in the mystery of these emotions, it is easier to simply ignore them. But Lord, pray that today we would be challenged to experience anger in a way that brings restoration and unity and not sin and brokenness. Lord, we pray that we would release our grip on resentment and turn our face to you. We pray this in your name, amen.